Hello and welcome to the cultural duel in the crown of the bank holiday weekend. Wow. Is that, is, is that right? Is that what wow. we are? Let's go with that. Let's go with the that. The jewel eh? in the crown of the bank holiday, the cultural jewel in the crown of the bank holiday weekend. So I just can't read it because, listener, Chris has written this on a piece of cards and he's just holding it up to me. <laughs> what I would have suggested is that we maybe leave that until the Jubilee bank holiday weekend. I'm just spitballing oh. here, but maybe we could have... Uh, Damn it. Oh, we've used it early. God save the Queen. Yeah, we and mean that. it, man. Fascist regime. Yeah. Um, oh. oh, well. Done it now. I yeah. know, I know. Well, yeah, you do join us for a bank holiday weekend special. Yeah. And and what a special it's going to be. Anyway, how's your bank holiday weekend been, Mr. Payne? Oh, oh good. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm editing a, a podcast. <laughs> That's I walked the dog, so... though. That was nice. Had a, had a nice you walked call. the dog, did you? I did, yeah. It was lovely. Do you ever have to drag the dog or carry the dog? Sometimes when I get to the park, he will, uh, if he's not up for it, he will stop and I'll have to go back to get him and then when I go back he'll just start walking away from me and I then have to run and then it becomes a chase and you know it it, it often resembles a Benny Hill sketch except I'm not chasing nurses around a hospital <laughs> I'm chasing a dog around a park um yet yeah oh easy oh um, hey, do you know what I know I'm not a I'm not a dog owner does your dog Scouty, he's a, he's a beautiful little thing. Does he like music? Um, I have got a video of me playing saxophone to him, and oh, I'll, maybe, I'll maybe look at it. He howls, yeah. Um, but to be fair, it's not the first time I've had that uh, reaction to my saxophone <laughs> playing, so uh, yeah, I wasn't entirely surprised. I'll maybe look it out and post it on the website, or maybe not. Oh, that would be great. Does he? Does he put his own lead on and take himself out for a walk as soon as you start playing? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> or he'll just put his head underneath something. <laughs> here's, here's one for you. I was watching um, festival footage this week of Morrissey mm -hmm. uh, because of our, our guest today. Uh, it's not Morrissey. No. Uh, my daughter came in, Grace came in and was asking again about the splits at festivals. So had Glastonbury released the splits yet? When is it going to be released? The timings. And um, it, still, it still gets me excited that. But I'm already panicking at Glastonbury at the amount of artists and the potential clashes I think there's going to be. So, yeah. you know, I'd like to see McCartney. I'd, I'd like to see a bit of Kendrick. Billy Eilish too, but I know Little Sims is headlining. Sam Fender and Foles are in there, and Elbow. Are they going to be at the top of the bill on a different stage, you know? And I suppose with another festival, with a smaller festival, you don't actually have that far to travel because you've often got, no. you know, an, out, a, an outdoor stage and maybe then um, a five, ten minute walk is a, a, a tent where something, yeah. you know, a massive big top or whatever. But at Glastonbury, yeah. you've got a hell of a walk <laughs> from everywhere. It's, yeah. it's like walking around London, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Have you ever had any nightmare clashes or really, really tricky decisions? Well, this was, I think I did mention it in one of our episodes, but um, if I didn't, if I'm misremembering that, I'll just say it again. But um, yeah, I went, okay. to, I went to Tina Park for a few years 
and I mean, supposed to be in the park is one of these festivals which had a quite a small footprint. If you see what I mean, you, you could travel yeah. from one end of the the, the site to the well, other. Got tiny, tiny shoes in. Tiny shoes, yeah, tiny definitely. footprint, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I, I chose to go, and I, I was never a massive fan, but they were just on, and I thought I'll go and see them. I saw Terrorvision; they were on the, mm. the, they were on the main stage, and yeah, they were oh, all right, God. they were all right, right, yeah. I should have gone to see the Cocteau Twins. Oh yes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, what an idiot! So, Absolute idiot. Well, when you were looking at that leaflet or lanyard or program, and you did you notice that the Cocteau Twins were playing? To be honest, I didn't get into the Cocteau Twins until probably around about 96, 97, something like that. So I, I wasn't I wasn't a fan of Cocteau Twins late 80s. I think I did have one single, but um yeah, I don't I don't think they ever kind of got really into my head. But then thinking back now, so this is a clash in hindsight basically, which I now wish I'd I'd gone the other way. But yeah. It's a really bad decision. Chris, have you ever seen Amy Winehouse? Oh, shut your face. <laughs> shut your face. Right. <laughs> Our guest this episode is the wonderful Andrew Parisi. And oh. so I've, I've known Andrew for a, for a while now. I, I, I first met him in 2018, I think, when I interviewed him first for my drumming portrait project. And yeah, he's just a delight, really lovely fella, really articulate, very funny. And yeah, it was just a pleasure to catch up with him again. What, what I was really excited about was um, being a, you know, I love Smith's and Morrissey's music and especially those uh, first few albums and first album um, from Morrissey. I knew that Stephen Street was involved and I knew that An Andrew uh, was involved but I didn't know to what extent so every day is like Sunday as I mentioned in the in the interview is absolutely one of my favorite songs ever in the world whatever lived and it's I have certain songs where I have to air guitar or I have to whether that's lead or bass or where I've got to do air keys or air drums we all have them I mean, I have a yeah. punch on for doing all that rubbish anyway. But like Five's debut album. Is that what you mean? Yeah. All the choreography. I know yeah. all the dance moves. Well, every day is like Sunday. Absolutely. The drums. Bum, 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 and I'm just repeating what I did in the interview, but it's impossible for me to not. And I just love that drum line. I absolutely love it. Mm. So it was fascinating to ask him about uh, ask him about those albums and, and realize that. He's the man playing uh, and came up with uh, that and Suedehead, you know, uh, along with other amazing singles. But what, what, what a talent. No, absolutely. There were things that we talked about um, on this, this episode, uh, which I hadn't heard before. Um, obviously, I interviewed him and I recorded the interview when I first spoke to him back in 2018. So what I might do is pop that interview up on our website as well because yeah, it's, it. it's completely different it's more about the drumming side of things and it goes in a lot deeper to mm. individual tracks but uh, anyway i'll pop that on the website and on the on the on the web page that would be great because what we sort of didn't have 
time or it didn't it didn't come around to is what I love about him is that he with his drumming is that he's so eclectic on what he's played and we didn't really get around to speaking about how he played with Buck's Fizz you know not Buck's Fizz Morrissey Bleeds it's just Jim Diamond career and Jim Diamond I should have known better <laughs> and I have such admiration for a musician that can play all those genres, but not just be a, a, a jack of all trades, but actually be a jack of all trades and master of all of them. You know, it's just it, 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 incredible. And so, what a wonderful man! It really was a a, a privilege to chat to him. So. Get yourselves ready, get your coffee, your tea, get your running trainers on or whatever it is you do. And uh, you're going to enjoy this one. And here he is, the absolute legend that is Andrew Parisi. Indeed, we are very privileged to have with us comedian, actor, writer, director, singer, dancer, actress, model, drummer extraordinaire. <laughs> it's Andrew Parisi. <laughs> Andrew, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on your excellent podcast. I'm uh, really chuffed to be here. Thanks. Bless you. Yeah, no, it, the, the, the pleasure, the privilege is ours. I was listening to your, your wonderful documentary, I Was Morrissey's Drummer, and ne- never mind the sort of history and the actual fact that you were Morrissey's drummer, the way you've put that documentary together and the humour is just unlike any other music documentary I have ever heard. And it is, you've been making me giggle for, for the past couple of days. So. Oh, that's really kind, Alex. Thank you so much. That's really sweet. (laughs) It's it's brilliant. So to be able to chat to you is, is honestly a pleasure. So thank you for, thank you for taking time. How do we find you at the moment? Are you a busy man? What are you up to? Well, pretty good. Um, I'm working on a series at the moment for the Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, which is, uh, it's really about how music travels through time specifically how melodies and songs can get reused by different cultures at different times. So you'll have a folk song maybe originating in um, the 14th century and it then reappears in the 16th and then a classical composer gets hold of it in the 18th and then it becomes a hit for Elvis Presley in 1961, that sort of thing. Um, so it's really just seeing how how and why melody travels well. Um, and, you know, and for example, stuff sung on football terraces can be yeah. quite interesting. You know, how these, these tunes will translate into other things and have different meanings. So it's not as esoteric as I'm making it sound. Um, but, but we're looking at, you know, it's really about time traveling music at the end of the day. My interest is immediately peaked and I've got all these questions. I've not even heard the documentary. When you say that they reoccur, do you mean the actual exact notes? It, it, sometimes it's the exact notes. Um, yeah. For example, there's one we're doing, which is uh, the House of the Rising Sun, which most people sort of think, oh, that's the animals. And um, it was kind of, it must have been an American blues classic that they ripped right. off. Whereas, in fact, it was a 16th century folk song um, with a different title, but the same kind of tune. It's essentially about an English gentleman 
who goes into a house of ill repute, loses all of his money and is busted and broken forevermore. And it wow. started out life then and uh, as a sort of, um, you know, pretty tune and, and, and a very sad story. It's quite, quite, quite a common type of song uh, that you'd have heard in those, those uh, back in those years. Then it sort of migrated when there was a huge movement of, of um, people from the northeast of England, Scotland, especially in the Highlands, when they moved to America. Mm. Um, it kind of reoccurs then and becomes part of the folklore there in the Appalachians and um, Appalachian Mountains. And it kind of so it, it's been tracked uh, to as an Appalachian folk tune. And then it, come, it comes back mysteriously to, of all places, Lowestoft in 1930. Wow. Uh, where it, it because the pub I'm not sure because I haven't fully researched the program it's not out for another year or so but um, it, it's like a pub in in Lowestoft which really is the house of the rising sun in the in in England because it's the furthest east so um, there was some kind of play around that but it was always a regular folk tune sung uh, predominantly in the northeast of England. And then um, the animals over, I think they were in a, in a pub somewhere and they heard a band playing it. And they just thought, hey, let's do this, but let's make it, let's not make it low stuff. Let's make it New Orleans. And uh, which, of course, is the sensible go to place, the, the birthplace of jazz of R&B and all sorts of other things. And the, the, the nexus of many music forms, many of them originating from Europe uh, uh, as well as Africa and so on. So. Yeah, and that they made the hit with it, but it's it's so it's that's an example of what I mean. It sort of stretches over four hundred years. I don't know about you, Chris, but I am absolutely in. Is this a six-parter, or is this, or do you not know yet? It's a three-parter. Three-parter. Um, and each episode takes a song or a tune, and we then we examine it. You know, we go through it, we travel with it. At the same time, looking at other uh, music along the way, which has equally travelled incredible distances, like one a tune that was played on a very early lute um, in ancient Greece, I think, which was preserved as hieroglyphics on stone and was decoded by a, a Turkish, no, it would, be, it would have been a Syrian composer. It was, it was found on Syrian rocks uh, unearthed in a, in a site. And, and it was something like he was able to scribe the notes and they were able to get a singer to interpret what was being sung and it was just beautiful it was like some eastern sort of uh, chord sequence uh, you know sort of a scale and over the top of that was this wistful voice you know and you just think wow that's incredible that's from that is three thousand years ago i was waiting for you to say and actually it was my it way was morrissey it was, it was morrissey going oh greece is just so boring <laughs> I want to go home now. That would be funny, wouldn't it? From 3,600 years ago, it's Morrissey. I want to go home now. Put the kettle on. <laughs> <laughs> Athens knows I'm miserable now. <laughs> Athens knows I'm miserable now. Yes, and it's determined that you leave. Um, <laughs> your visa has expired. Well, where... I mean, this. I mean, this isn't an advert for what you're doing, but I want to know where will we be able to listen to this? Is this uh, this will be on? Or? Yes, BBC Radio Four. BBC. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, Radio Four. Andrew Perezzi McGowan. Yes, that's right. Um, and and uh, it'll be available. Um, yeah, on 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 the old Steam Radio, but also on BBC Sounds as well.
I can't. So, yeah. I, genuinely, I can't, I can't wait for that. It's fascinating. Really and I, would love, I would love a conversation about that. And also, you know, I have found fascinating like the, the Ed Sheeran court case yeah uh, of late and um um what is deemed as someone ripping someone off you know with this finite amount of mm. sort of notes that we have but it, things like that and the robin the robin thick case yes. as well and yes. yes there's some gray I, I i i read all i i read all of it and just follow these cases because it really does amuse me because then you just have some music, musicians who are quite open and just say well Essentially, I mean, like Paul McCartney and that, they just would say, you know, well, I just heard this and put those notes, used a bit of that, this, that. And Stairway to Heaven was an ongoing thing for years yes. and years. Mm. Yeah. But I, I think, I think you know, the whole, if you like, the banner of popular music is about refitting stuff to move forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a reinvention. It's a constant reinvention and, uh, you know, sort of reassigning. And... The beginnings of rapper is a lot like that, just lifting whole sort of rhythm sections yes. from records and rapping over them. Um, yeah. that's and now it's the, it's the you know, arguably it's it's currently the world's biggest genre of music. Uh, uh, yeah, and and what's interesting is those initial samples um, have given way to an entire sort of uh, professional um, uh, living for some people, yes. embedding different samples on a track, and mm. it's it's, it's astonishing. You wouldn't really be able to identify um, individual samples unless you knew they were there. And, and um, but an entirely new sort of musical fragrance is created yeah. from the bedrock of, of previously recorded tunes. So it's very weird. Something I started, and then and then uh, I'll be honest, I I quit very quickly because it was just a nightmare. The the Avalanches, their debut album, that first album, was every track, every song from start to finish was completely sampled. Mm. And so of course in the sleeve notes and that the credits were bonkers. And I thought, you know, what? Yes. I'm going yes. to try and listen to every original piece of music that and sample that they took it from. And, uh, and, and people said, Oh, is it music? Is it original? Well, I personally think, yes, it is just to be able to, to do that and create, you know, it, different pieces of music yeah. from samples and you're right it's created a, a genre itself it's it's fascinating fascinating well it, anyway. it, it, yeah sorry i was going to say just as a parting issue yeah. uh, i mean when if you were to take um you know the campbell suit tins or marilyn monroe pictures by andy warhol i mean it's hard to imagine whether the corporate structures were given a, a what really about yeah. that um, but now everyone needs the pennies and, um, you know, you, you literally have to write the sum, you know, who's, what do you sample? It has to, has to, yeah. The writing has to be on one side of the album. I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's all, I think it's fascinating. Um, and it's also, also quite interesting to see some people like Della Sol, for example, um, go back to basics and, and make their own samples with uh, rhythm sections and, and then use those samples. Uh, exactly. That, that's completely flipped it. It's flipped it the other way. Yeah, I love that you've mentioned that because that mm. is, I'm a big Dilla Soul fan and that is, I love that they've done that. They've gone, hang on yeah. a sec. Let's do it ourselves. It's very clever. It is very clever. Do, uh, I'd love to have been there when they went, hang on a second, I've got an idea. <laughs> what, a, what a fantastic idea. So yeah, it was, yeah. Let's, let, let us take you back. We've already jumped mm. straight in and, you know, we've mentioned that uh, uh, obviously you're uh, a wonderful musician, but um, when... 
When did the journey begin that would ultimately lead to a ponchon for a demi-semi, Andrew? A demi-semi? Well, uh, I think it's hard for me to identify a musical moment. My mother was was very fond of telling me that I used to sing She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, from the pram when I was six months old. So (laughs) the the Beatles got to me when I was quite young, got in my ears. They got to Um, me. Yeah. I, I mean, my parents weren't interested in music very much um okay you know that they they weren't musical people um in fact the closest i think we got to seeing a gig was was um, like we were on holiday somewhere and we were watching a brass band playing in, in a village hall somewhere in, in muddiford bay i think near bournemouth and that's the closest we got to it so it's not like they were going you've got to come with us to see this you know um the police or whatever so how does it happen then? Because it, it fascinates me because both Chris and I are from musical households mm. and it was it was literally impossible for me to avoid music growing up, to avoid playing the violin, singing, all these things. And so it was obvious where my, you know, my love and encouragement came from. But how does someone that gets to y- your level uh, of musicianship, how does that happen when you when you've just jokingly told us that it just wasn't in the house much music how did that happen then where did where do you think that love came from well it's very it's very odd i have to say um it's a very odd thing because my background my family's background my dad was he was um, an educator he was a journalist he ran a magazine he uh was a, an examiner at london university he, i mean i was from uh, it was a book reviewer i mean i was from an academic background so we had books everywhere not music it was it was the written word it was psychology wasn't it it was psychology that's right he was a psychologist he was a child psychologist actually and um you know he was a uh, worked for the local authority as their head child psychologist um so uh really what happened was I, i i started i think i think i started to play the drums out of a certain desperation because um, I was hearing a lot of music as I was coming of age. And this was a very interesting time. So 75, 76, 77, there wow. was this sort of m- melange of great stuff. Punk, yeah. the disco music was, was in its uh, sort of ascendancy. And um, I just was, I was captivated by jazz as well. And uh, all of these things were creating a sort of fusion, which is what was happening at the time. And I just couldn't hear enough stuff. So I would, you know work all summer and buy, you know, um, a record player and buy records and, and so on. So I, really, it was a private pleasure. It, it wasn't born by my parents at all. Is this, a, is this so would, would that have been your teenage? Years? Yeah, I would have been between about 14 and 16. I suddenly started listening to music in a very, very serious way. Up until you... the age of 14, I, I'd been listening to Radio 1 and harbored right. a desire one day to be honest and you know, I just thought, oh, this is great. And, and I knew all the songs and all the rest of it. And then suddenly someone turned me on to a pianist called Chick Career, And I started listening to one of oh, his wow. solo albums. Uh, I think it was called The Leprechaun. And I just thought, what is this? Yeah. It's like a concept album, but it's nothing like, you know, Yes or, or any of these other groups. It's like, whoa, where is this coming from? So um, and it was a, it had predated that that sort of disco era I referred to. Mm. Um, well, actually, it came about around. It's about. It was actually seven, 1976 that album. So, um, 
it was really when I started to get into that, that that drumming took off as a thing, because I realized that this wasn't just a matter of keeping the beats. It was an instrument in its own right. And that just then, I also had a hunger for success. I really wanted to make a success of this because school had been very disappointing. It was a dreadful, dreadful grammar school in central London. It was just awful. Uh, it was certainly it was bad. I won't yeah, mention well, the name. But, can can oh. I ask you why why the drums? Do you feel like you were always someone that was tapping or that had a sense of rhythm? Because people can find out very quickly whether they can be a half decent drummer or not, you know, cause some yeah. people have it and some people, you know, don't. Why, what, what was, what was it? I think what, what it was is that from, from quite a young age, in addition to singing the Beatles and the pram, I'd started doing this thing where at night in order to get to sleep, I would sing songs I'd heard on the radio. And this would be from the age of maybe about five or six through till 11. And I would do this movement. I suspect now I'm probably on. Uh, it might it might be some sort of um, you know, very low level autism of some sort. Okay. Uh, and it's very possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but I used to do this. I used to go. And for the listener, for the listener there, let me just explain that Andrew. If you imagine you lay down in your bed. Andrew's hand is on his head and it's moving yeah. it left and right. Moving yes, so I, left I'm, and right. I'm, I'm literally, put, my head is going uh, to the left and to the right, to the left, in time to the tunes I'm singing. And it could have been anything at that right. time, but okay. popular tunes like Grosser Jack, Grosser Jack, is it true what daddy, um, um, or... Um, but it created a rhythm, it clearly created... Yeah, comfort and rhythm for you. It was comfort and rhythm, and it started very early on. That's interesting. But it's quite a movement, though. It's quite a. It's quite a. Mm. An in, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm there. There's a lot of yeah. Yeah. You know, I was committed. That's something. Yeah, absolutely. But it's something that you've. Yeah, it's a workout. That it was a workout, but not as much as. I mean, maybe a workout for me, but for my parents beneath the bedroom, it really was something else because it really sounded like their nine-year-old son was was having sex, because you know, (laughs) and it was just. And honestly, I mean, they were driven nuts by it, and they were driven nuts by it even later. Uh, but I'll come on to that in a bit. Um, yeah. So, I mean, not only was this outside of their comfort zone, but it was in another universe that was threatening Earth, and, uh, it, it, or their Earth anyway, and, and it, it was really tough for them. Yeah. Really I mean, the, end, the end of the old order was really nigh at that point, wasn't it? It was kind of, you know... The... Well, for the, for, I mean, my parents, my dad had fought with... Um, he fought in the Third Army in the desert... My mum had driven generals around during the war in uh, Salisbury Plain. And they'd met in Egypt uh, when they were both uh, posted there. So it's a a very, plus they were devout Catholics. And so that that was an entirely different thing. So by the time the 60s hit and, you know, you had um, the beat poets and then you had, you know, rock and roll. And they were just terrified that the world was going to change around them. And, uh, you know, they were just determined that this fifth, son of theirs was going to not be affected by it and of course then disco arrives you know and then well that screwed that then didn't it yeah it did i mean i mean it's, it, there's no point in trying to resist the, the, the tide 
that yeah. hits your youngsters because there's nothing you can do. They're going to go with it. Did you get kickback from them when you were sort of wanting to play play drums? Yes. Uh, I mean, initially they didn't understand what it was. What they saw was someone who was entering a career that they didn't know anything about, but which they'd understood involved, possibly involved a lot of drugs and sex and involved things that weren't very Catholic. And uh, in addition to that, yeah, yeah. in addition to that, there was also the fear that it was not going to be a profession. I kept trying to reassure them and say, well, you know, it's it's a profession as valid as any other, but it's like, you know, you don't sit in an office. But I've got to ask, Andrew, no, no musician that we've spoken to on here has sort of mentioned so quickly and so soon that being a profession. So that must be a part of your so how soon after you started playing drums did you think i'm going to make this my living well from i was i was probably at college uh where i was doing a music course right. and a levels and um and uh, then the music course became a, a, a bit more full-time and i came face to face with a drum kit when i was 16 and a half and I thought, this is it. This is this is what I want to do. At least this is what I want to do now. Yeah. And so very rapidly, I made up for lost time drawing deep on the rhythms that I'd clearly been torturing my parents with in bed um, all those years before. And really? I think that that's, um, you know, that, that's kind of where it, it gathered from. And by the time I graduated from college, the drum teacher was giving me clues as to how to get work and so on. So it was at that point, really, when I was about 19, I decided, 18, really, 19, I decided to turn pro, as I said. I, did, I went professional. But the first sets of gigs I used to do were all, like, really dodgy. It was like, you know, it would be a year-end celebration for some accounting company somewhere, and you'd drive all the way out to some hotel. Fucking hell. And, yeah. and, and um, <laughs> I had to sing as well as drums, so I, I had to... Um, when you're in love with a beautiful, beautiful woman, it's hard. Dr. And, yes. oh, I know. And then people will come up to you. They'll be so drunk afterwards. They'd come up to you and say, And I go, well, that's lovely, dear. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Sexy uh, one, eyes. Yeah, sexy eyes. <laughs> I actually liked uh, my favorite track of theirs was Sylvie's Mother. I mean, where have, where's that humor gone? It seems to have disappeared, really. Well, certainly from music, anyway. You've, you've jumped straight into you playing live, but had you been to see bands live? I know you, you, you're saying that you, your parents didn't, didn't go to gigs. So what, what was your first gig? Um, I remember seeing Sham 69 somewhere in southwest London. It's quite possible, actually, it could have been somewhere like Hersham, which is, of course, where they were from. Yeah. Um, well, um, it's one of your first, that might have been one of I your first I think so, gigs. yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. I went with someone... Um, I was working in a supermarket and they said oh do you want to go and see Sham 69 I thought, oh, okay yeah I'll go do that sounds like a laugh they're in the charts at the moment um I saw Paul Simon at Hammersmith uh did a complete sort of tack change um uh, I thought that was brilliant um these are ones I just try to remember um it sounds like because you've already mentioned a few genres of music so it yeah. sounded it sounded like uh, and I'm sure it's still the same, but especially in those early days, as you were forming your your love of music, it sounds like you were open to 
everything from the Beatles to prog rock to jazz, it, yeah. uh, punk, Sham 69. It, is that the case? Were you just, yeah. you just wanted to, you know, take it in and see it and listen to it? Absolutely. Uh, to me, there was no, there was never a, a boundary um, between forms, but I think uh, inevitably I started to develop um, a preference for jazz because I felt that as a, as a form that would give you the highest elevation um, as a musician. In other words, you, you had much more to work on to achieve a certain outcome. Yeah. You, you know, um, uh, because the technical work involved and all the rest of it. And, and who would your reference points be? Who was it that you were listening to? Um, I think around that time, the two drummers that I was really into um, was ha- Harvey Mason, who was very popular yeah. uh, in, in the studios. Uh, Steve Gadd, I, I was very fond of him at yeah, that time. Steve he Gadd, was yeah. shining just like a such a bright light. Um, Jack DeJohnette, jazz drummer. Um, and then there was, um, you know, there were there were others who were playing who, who I quite liked. Um, Charlie Watts. Um, yes, he was. He was pretty amazing. Kind of straddled, straddled a lot there as well, didn't he? Going from rock to jazz and back. Well, he's a he's a jazz musician that plays yeah. rock, which is what made him so great. Yeah. Um, I loved Frank Zappa. Um, yes, like there was a drummer almost with every album, but he also, had, you know, he had a great band, sort of mid seventies, um, which included. Uh, Vinnie Collier, I think, was, was with him at that okay. point. Um, Joe's Garage, was it? Or maybe, uh, I can't remember. But anyway, uh, so, um, yeah, the point is there were no boundaries to me. Um, Did you have, uh, I mean, be you were, I suppose you are in the right place in London. Did you have opportunities to to see any of these people live? Or or at least, you know, jazz that you were, you were, you were enjoying? Yes, I, I used to go to Ronnie Scott's quite a lot. And, oh, um, wow. And uh, you'd see all the American greats come over. I saw Chick Corea several times, actually. Astonishing. Oh, my um, gosh. Just such a brilliant musician. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I could get out to see these people. I was going to ask, um, when you went to see Paul Simon, um, was Steve Gadd playing with him? Yes, he was. Yeah, oh, right. he was on that tour um, there whenever it was, 78, 79. Right. Um, yeah, okay. yeah. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Oh, that's right well it was a bit after that it was yeah. it was more like 70s i think it was just after graceland or maybe it was just before graceland i'm not sure all right um, so 80s yes yeah right, okay yeah no actually no no it would have been following um still crazy after all these years right. i think there was there was an album between still crazy yeah because graceland was his first one for a while wasn't it it was that's right yeah. sliding away was a single he'd released anyway it was to promote a, uh, an ep or something was there a gig in particular that you remember where you thought, oh, this is it, that, uh, this is what I want, want to do, I want to be a performer? I think just watching yeah. people on stage playing was, just gave me the massive horn. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, it was just great. That's, that's, amazing. that's the perfect description. Because it was just like, this is great. You know, you're up on stage playing and you're making something. You're actually... Uh, it's making a rhythm it's cohesive people are into it they're really driving it from the floor you know they really want to be a part of it and there was something very uniting and fulfilling about it too it was a communicative art it was something that was 
um, connecting us all rather than pushing us apart. And is, is that music being so uh, important for us all and it's such a deep sort of powerful bond between us. Why there are so many tosses uh, in bands? I just, I've never understood that because you'd think that they'd all be like sort of hallowed priests and uh, <laughs> no, and we'd like them rock, here we go. But actually it's, what they are is a picture of human nature so often yeah, you know yeah. they're vain they're sort of mercurial they're, they're just into themselves they don't talk to the bass player for years and it's like families on stage only playing music so it's quite weird um you know i found it's like a religion as i said earlier it's like a profound connection but the people doing the connecting are quite sort of um well they can vary in quality you know once you left music college um d did you go straight into working professionally or what what was the what was the process then once once you left or did it start when when you were still there um well it started while i was still there but the, i mostly was getting gigs like that it was airport gigs um uh, where i'd be working in an airport lounge playing and singing um you know all sorts of songs sorry and let me just stop you there now i know i'm a, a welsh boy and uh, i may have been hidden from life Air, airport gigs yes airport gigs so you see i lived with my parents until i was about 17 or 18 um at their house uh which was two miles from heathrow airport oh whereabouts was that uh, Witten. It's near Twickenham. Right. I used to live in West Ryslip. Ah, that's that's not that's not far at all. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, I I used to I, I, I used to get gigs at with bands in in the airport lounges and restaurants, um, and that I would play bad. and sing. Um, so you I know, didn't even know that was a thing. I yeah. Well, it was, it was a thing. Was I don't know thing. if it still happens, but at that time there was a restaurant in the Sheraton skyline called the Colony Room. And I was in a band in there, and we were all dressed in these white suits. It was, it was fucking hilarious. And I'd get behind the kit, and I'd start singing, you know, various songs, um, nice. all sorts of different types, um, but playing drums at the same time. And um, yeah, it was a gig. It was a living. But I was getting pretty depressed actually, because I thought I'm not quite sure I'm going in the right direction here. And this is earning a living and paying for stuff, but it's um, I wasn't getting into the in crowd. So when did you start going in the right direction then? Well, I think I, I veered off the airport gigs and started moving into what you might say were more sort of more precarious studio stuff. Like uh, I'd I'd start playing with musicians that were making albums but didn't have any money or you know stuff like that yeah. just to make connections. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mean that was that was the path for a while for about a year or so, two years maybe. And then um, would this be would this would be the early eighties. This would be the early to mid eighties. Early to mid, okay. Yeah, so I w I was in various groups that were that weren't successful or got close to it and didn't it didn't happen. There was an awful lot of that. It's a horrible business, really, for that. And when that was happening, who were you? Who were you then going to see uh, of an evening? You know, what kind of bands were you then watching that sort of early to mid eighties? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, um, whoever was kind of hip, you know, I'd go down to the um, 100 Club, see who was playing there sometimes. There'd be a lot of really interesting groups. Um, oh, God, who did I see? Um, Classics Nouveau I saw in their early stage. Oh, and wow. I en ended up playing with their singer later on. 
Um, who, who's this remember. singer? Remind me of the singer's name. Sal Solo. Okay. He's um, but he became a born again Christian and started singing Christian songs. So I fitted in really well. This is drummer, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, but that was that was later on. Um, yeah. And so, um, just groups, you know, just stuff that was happening. I I, did, I wasn't into the because what happened in the mid eighties was you had Live Aid and that seemed to sort of elevate the whole sort of rock genre into this global force. Yes. And and really that was a partition I think because um, I could have gone down that route and been sort of that kind of drummer but then I, I just felt no I don't really want to go that way so I, I you know instead of hustling on that side of things I kept wanting to stay in the studio and I felt the studio was the place where I really blossomed but you know there were so many brilliant people around way better than me and, and it was very hard to sort of get a notch you know to get but in. What, but, but what were you what did you at that time because that was obviously quite a, um, a a process for you what were you wanting who you know what style were you on at that moment who were you thinking you wanted to be or emulate or well i think this was the problem i was facing it was really that i i had a plan and yeah. i had uh, an end point in sight i wanted to be a respected uh musician who had played okay. with lots of people uh, in various genres and I wanted right. to make a decent living and have money and not be worrying. That was the end point. Um, but getting to it wasn't, uh, uh, no one had taught me how to get to that point. No. So, I, uh, no, I, because had I come from a music, I'm not blaming my parents, bless them, because um, I love them. But I, I, I know that if I'd come from a musical family, it's likely they'd have, and they'd been successful musicians, let's say, or they'd just been working musicians. Mm. They, they just said well you need to do this these are the people you need to impress you can't let them down you've got to be able to read you've got to do all this well i had to find all this out for myself and so there were many years in the 80s that were wasted just in trying to get focused and finding out who was what and i i, I felt sort of a bit lost and until about um 1985 86 when we got signed to cbs in a group called a pair of blue eyes and um this was a great Sort of, it sounded a bit like um, it was very solely. The, the lyrics were, were very literate. Um, it's like Curiosity killed a cat with with sort of literate lyrics. Um, it, it was pretty neat. And we, we were signed at the same time as Terence Trent Darby. I don't know if you remember him. So there, oh, there was like a what yeah. one of the great albums. Yeah. Introducing the hard line, according to introducing the hard line. Yeah, that's it. Sorry, I think well, there right. was a wishing well, wasn't there? And, and so we were signed by the same guy, and uh, he'd signed us to the label, and uh, we were all thought this is going to be fantastic. And um, our first single was called "You Go." You used to go to my head, and I played the drums on it, and it was all fine. But they wanted someone to come in and remix the single so they'd make it a bit more radio friendly. Yeah. because the engineer who'd done it hadn't made it radio-friendly enough for the label. And um, the guy who came in to do it was Stephen Street. He carved out a reputation for himself at Island Studios and um, uh, the, the, the shelter, I think it was called, the bomb shelter, maybe. Um, yeah. And and he, so, yeah, so, I mean, basically, that's how the connection was made, and that's how we sort of moved into, that's how I went sort of from not being known to being slightly better than and 100% of that is because of Stephen Street. It was quite quite interesting because we, we were playing, Stephen Street would have been mixing stuff, lots of electronic sequences and all the rest of it. He'd have been listening to dramas playing along to click tracks 
and um, when he came to mix our first single he was trying to find the click track in the uh, you know on, on the tape so how's the drummer keeping in time or said something like that anyway and the singers Steve Bush said to him well he, he's just playing in time to himself you know there is no click track and Steve was stunned by this the fact that I was in time all the way through because you had that kind of internal metronome yeah yes it goes all the way back to swinging backwards and forwards in oh, bed of course oh yeah. my goodness me you're kidding so it's kind of a full body thing that you had almost got muscle memory from when you were a kid i think so yeah from just creating rhythms in, in my head so you've never see. used a click track then have you well, always uh, I was using click tracks and learning to click tracks. And of course I played with them. Um, that was to be expected if you were going to be hired. But the point was, when we did this recording, um, we just played, you know, as a group. There were three of us. So, and a singer. So, so that's why it was, it was driving, you know, it had a sort of driving rhythm, driving rhythms, quite good sort of funky rhythms. So they were all sort of mid-tempo-y mid stuff. So, yeah, yeah uh, it, it, it was pretty incredible, actually, for someone to have identified that and then got back to me. Uh, and I mean, you know the story, yeah? the Smith split up in 87. And then I got a call from him, from Stephen, saying, you know, would you like to play drums on Morrissey's solo album? You've come a long way and you've, you know, we're up to, we're up to Mr. Morrissey. And so you, you've spent, you know, over a decade now going to live music and seeing live music. This is sometimes we, we get wonderful answers. Sometimes we don't. Chris and I are geeks and we grew up keeping our tickets, our gig tickets and collecting merchandise. And I, I still at various times during the week drink, drink from a, Bell and Sebastian mug or a, <laughs> I have, I have all kinds in those, in those sort of uh, uh, years of going to gigs. Did you, was that something you were ever onto? Did you ever keep your ticket stubs? Did you collect memorabilia? And even from your professional point of view, you know, did you perhaps keep your, 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 your passes or anything like that? Like we spoke to Martin Carr from the Boo Radleys and he said he kept, he had, just hundreds of lanyards from you know touring with the Boo Radleys and and all that. Would was that something that was ever in your your personality, Andrew? Um, I'm not sure how much it's in my personality to collect stuff. Um, I do hoard things, but it tends to be sort of uh, Sainsbury's bags filled with old cans <laughs> of soup. Um, I, I, I actually come back from yeah. I, I I I'm not so much the one for lanyards and so on. Um, I did get a ticket from um, the Paul Simon gig, but that was only, I got a ticket driving home. Um, oh. <laughs> and it was from this, it was astonishing, this guy. He was at my primary school and he'd gone on to become a copper. And um, he called me over because I was driving a, a Mini and he, he said, um, I'm just doing, a, just doing a check, sir. Said, I know you, you were at school with me. That's right. So just a moment. So, and he found out that um, the, the car I was driving, the driver told, told me I was insured to drive it. It turned out I wasn't. And uh, so I got a ticket for driving without insurance. So that's why, uh, you know, when people say to me tickets, I, I immediately think about, <laughs> you know, that. But in fact, I got it quashed on appeal. 
that's the best answer we've ever had to that question. <laughs> I, I, I got it quashed uh, at, at a, a, in a uh, in a, um, you know appeal, so I was very pleased about that. But that was really unpleasant after really a brilliant, brilliant evening. Because we have to, we obviously have to talk uh, 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 about Mr. Morrissey. But before we do, we're gonna we're, we're gonna take you through a quick fire and get a bit more information from your. Um, your your gig history and then we're going to talk about you playing with uh with Stephen I always call him Stephen so quick fire round we realize that answers to these questions Andrew could be different from day to day as a punter or a performer what do you class as your favorite live gig ever well this is going to come as a real surprise to you but the one gig I saw had the most penetrating effect on my uh, world and psyche was actually watching Morrissey at Wembley Arena with the Kill Uncle Band at, at its very first outing. Because um, wow. there, there, there were two things going on at that point. Uh, me and Clive Langer came to the gig and we'd been working along with Mark and others on the Kill Uncle album. And then we went to the gig there and... I just thought, wow, you know, it's such a shudder went down my back because I, I was listening to Morrissey singing songs that we'd recorded. And yet here he was with this insane band who just looked, it just sounded incredible. You know, it just looked amazing. And whatever we had done in recording Kill Uncle, I suppose, this band were just punking it out of the universe. They were just astonishing. Um, I, I, I can remember Morrissey disappeared at one point to sort of float on the surface of this. And I had all these contrasting feelings going on inside me. On the one hand, I was thinking, why, why, why am I not up there? And realizing, no, of course you can't be up there. You haven't got, you know, this is not, you're not right for this. It's, this is, you, it wouldn't work. Is that, is that truthful, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it was a real ferment of, of like, why am I not up there? And, uh, yeah, I can see why I'm not up there. Really, that that's that that must have been hard to come to. I mean, you say it, mm, you know, it was this is a while ago, but that must have been hard because that it was very that, hard. Yeah. yeah, that's quite humbling to go. Actually, it wouldn't have worked with me. Well, I think at the point, I I, I thought the sound was a bit off. It always is in the arena. It's never a great venue. I've got no, to say them. No. How how many times people tell me this? I think it's bollocks. But yeah. also, um, when you focused on Morrissey and the group, the, just the combined energy was uh, unbelievable. But for me and Clive, I think to some extent, sitting there with me, we, we were looking at this and going, whoa, you know, what, what have we just finished and what is this in relation to it? So, yeah, so that's, that still stays with me as pretty amazing sort of experience. I'll be honest, you're right. I, I didn't see that answer coming. Uh, and as a reminder for those who perhaps weren't aware, that gig was, you know, after, did you, I don't suppose you ever played with Morrissey again, did you? Well, I never actually played live with him at, at all. Um, uh, no, after that, it's possible I may have done, no, I think we'd, we'd finished It's My Love Life and the gigs were following on from that. So no, I didn't, I didn't play with him again after that. You never actually played a live gig with Morrissey? N no. And this is, this is, uh, it would have been fantastic. I don't look back on it with any feelings other than it was just great to be along for the ride that I went on. Um, I can't take a view on it, but I, I know I would have definitely complimented him in mm. a different way. 
I think what we, the closest we came to a live group was when we played the B-sides for Every Day is Like Sunday. And uh, so that was Stephen Street, Vinnie Riley, uh, myself, and Morrissey. And what, what was very interesting was, um, you know, we sounded really sort of like, whoa, this is a, a real group. Quite probably would have been a bit too esoteric and um, low level. Uh, you know, a little sort of not quite sort of in your face. Um, but then immediately after that session ended, uh, Morrissey hired, he got back to hired the Smith's Rhythm section. Oh, yes, yes. He um, for yes, following singles. Was that for um, Born a Drag? And about Born a Drag time? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So he went back, he went yes. back to Mike and Andy for... Uh, or, um, I think it was interesting jargon last to the famous international playboys. So yeah, it was it was um, shifting drum stalls. <laughs> now because you, because you've mentioned the song, uh, hmm. I'm going to ask it now so that I don't just jam it in later. And yes, this is in the middle of the quick fire round, Chris. Hmm. I am aware. Oh yeah. So I'm sorry, <laughs> but you've mentioned every day is like Sunday. I must ask, that is you playing on on the record. That's correct, isn't it? Correct, yeah. I, I don't even know where to start with this, Andy. I could hug you and kiss you. And it is one of the greatest songs ever written and oh, is that's... absolutely in my top 10. I know people say that all the time, but genuinely, if I had to sit down and put, write my top 10 songs, greatest songs ever of all time, Every Day is Like Sunday is one of them. And I cannot tell you how many times I have air-drummed in my life to that particular song <laughs> over i mean it's embarrassing especially the first five seconds oh and i still do it i'm thrilled to hear that I'm thrilled to hear that and I, and I think Stephen wrote a brilliant song too it's 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 phenomenal and you've created one of the greatest or most memorable drum lines i I've ever heard. Oh, Can you tell so me you. something about it? And and that song genuinely makes me makes me feel a bit emotional. Tell me a bit about that song. Well, it was the the, the recording sessions were in two sections really. There was one bit which was prior to the great storm. I was just I remember that as dating the splits between the two recording sessions. And in the first right. session we did Swade Head. And I think in the second session we did Every Day is Like Sunday. And that there were two songs there that people would kill to write. And, and, and uh, really, um, for Swadehead, I just recall thinking it's important that this is, the drums are hit really, really hard. At, at this time, yeah. um, that there was no, uh, you, you know, we knew what was, well, well, sorry, we didn't know at the time, but Nirvana arrived with this great drummer who was, pretty much modelled on Led Zeppelin's drummer as, as, a, as a primary influence. Um, and, uh, you know, John Bonham, and, and uh, that was fine from 1990 or 91. But up to that point, drumming had been quite sort of a bit, you know, not terribly loud. It, it had become quite poppy and a little sort of... Definitely. I think even with, with those sort of American rock bands, the, the, mm. the drums were very... Wimpy. Know, yes. Wimpy. Yeah, not not always, but, but it was sort of slightly wimpy. And then, so I thought, well, the only way for me, from a drumming point of view, is this is a fast pop song. It's quite fast and, you know, or speedy anyway. I thought, I've got to hit everything really hard. There can be no 
holding back on the dynamics. This is going to work only if you smack really hard. And that was like a punky thos. So you were almost bringing a punky thos to, you know, to that sort of pop song. That's correct. Um, just thrashing the hell out of it, but but obviously keeping it in time. Um, so yeah, that that was that was that was the approach I took for that one. For every day is like Sunday. I had a number of songs in my head that basically what I was trying to create was, uh, although it was Stephen had written this really lovely uh, chord sequence, and uh, you know you know Morris's melody over the top just made it sort of magical. Um, I was still trying to drive it as a drummer. Uh, I wasn't sort of letting it drive me. I was still yeah. pushing to get a groove underneath it. And even though it's quite new ordery and, and sort of open and vast sounding sort of reverby, um, actually, if you tip the drums out, they push, re- they drive the thing forward, they drive it, you see, like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, 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 that, that was the approach I had. I can't remember the, whether I had any songs or model tunes in my mind at the time, but... Um, uh, I certainly, you know, it was keen. I was very keen that it, it, it had a groove. What I really, what I'm really appreciating is your explanation of that, because there's certain songs that I listen to, and the drums absolutely come first. And as you say that, when you hear that song, it is, all, I mean, it's all about the, the whole, but. It is really there. And what what that aim you had, that idea you had, has clearly come through in the in the production because it really is one of those that those songs that everyone, surely everyone eardrums to it. Chris, come on, back me up. No, absolutely. You're not playing the guitar on every day is like Sunday. You everyone's going ding 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 ding. You know, it's just uh, it, it's in, it's an incredible song. One thing I was going to ask you was um, in these recording sessions and kind of writing sessions, I'm just wondering what the dynamic was. Um, so obviously, uh, Morrissey was writing the, the 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 lyrics. Was he and uh, and Stephen um, was kind of chords the chords what was who was in charge of what and in terms of melody as well but where was was that was that morrissey um putting on top of what stephen was writing what was the dynamic well basically stephen had written demos and sent them to morrissey and morrissey had written back saying you know i, I really want to make an album so right. when we got to the studio stephen who was playing bass as well as guitar had a very, very clear idea of what he wanted to to do and what he wanted things to sound like. There was a, a wiggle room for for the drums in the sense that I could, uh, you know, suggest things uh, and do stuff and so on. Hmm. So, but uh, t- it wasn't uh, like, you know, a band sort of turning up the studio at 4 p.m. in the afternoon completely drunk and, and washed up. Yeah. and trying to sort of put down a rhythm track. It was pretty ruthless. I mean, we were doing something like three backing tracks a day, I think. Certainly three drum tracks a day, maybe even more, actually, I think. I was wiped out. I remember being wiped out one day. I think we'd done something like four. But it was a good it was a good wiped out feeling. It wasn't bad. It was like, oh, great, we've really achieved something. But, but in fact, it's normal. That's what you would do. Back in the day, you'd have been, you know, doing a three-hour session somewhere, and then you'd been doing a gig and so on. Well, this was a bit like that. Um, it was 
uh, I was giving every track my all because to me this felt like the calling card really that I've been I've been searching for. On the quick fire thing, I should just point out, you said both as punter and performer. Yes. Um, because obviously I've given you an example of the punter. The performer, I must just tell you quickly, was when I got, um, I was in Japan touring with Sandy Shaw. She was relatively unknown out there, you know, but she was um, a very active uh, uh, Buddhist and was a member or, or was associated with their chief organization, which is the Sokka Gokai, or this particular branch of Buddhism anyway. Yes. And what what they did was they organized gigs for her. And this this uh, Soku Gokai would make sure that an audience was present for each gig. So the so the audience would literally bust in. So every time we played a song, um, it wouldn't just be like the typical gap you'd get at Glastonbury where, you know, <laughs> it was. <laughs> and it would just be like, whoa, it'd be like falling off a cliff. You kind of really yeah. give it everything and then suddenly and it was it was the same at every gig except one i think in tokyo where a guy got up on stage and was doing uh, you know morrissey impression he had he had um gladiola in his back pocket and these guys from the soccer gokai just got up on stage and pulled him off straight away nothing was going to stop the six second delay and the clapping you know i was uh, yeah so that as a, as a performer was kind of quite fascinating that mm. people could hear music but not respond immediately and naturally to it because yeah. they they weren't meant to be there it was very <laughs> old no. i think i think that might also be the answer to our question what's what's your sort of most unusual live performance was probably something i remember we did some weird tv show for channel four years ago and it was it was cover versions and smart camera angles i remember i had a camera facing right up you know oh. under my nostrils almost you know you yeah. see the yeah. flex of of um schedule a drugs on my nostril hairs <laughs> actually there were no um it was the, the music was kind of more for show than for music so that suffered a bit um who were you playing with what was the band for that oh i can't i can't remember it was it, it, you know it was just a band that had been assembled to play right. a kind of uh, cocktail type music um <laughs> okay. i know you mentioned also most unusual uh, I think a pinch yourself moment at a gig. And yeah. um, one that really struck me was uh, just the beauty, intensity and the soulfulness of Aaron Neville, of the Neville brothers. He, yeah. I, I went to see them at the Brixton Academy, I think. And honestly, the guy singing was just on a stick. I mean, I'd never heard anything like it live before. Um, so it, I suddenly realised the important. I didn't realise it then, but I knew New Orleans was important. But then I realised just how significant the Aaron Brothers were to New Orleans and that sound. So yeah, yeah, it was pretty impressive. He did have such a unique sound. As oh well. yeah, yeah. It's something he did with his his vibratos. Yeah, vibrato really right at the fast. top as well. Yeah, and it was up. Yeah, Linda Linda Ronstadt. He did that big single with Linda Ronstadt. Didn't yes. He? Yeah, but I think I got a, the the wrong end of the stick with with that song because I, I it was it was everywhere <laughs> apart from anything else it was everywhere. It was oh, a yeah. film. It was because it was for a film. Though, wasn't it? I know I love you. Yeah, that may be. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, that single kind of made you don't realise just what a brilliant singer he is. When, uh, no, that kind of defined him, and and it certainly mm. defined him for me before I went back and listened to yeah. other stuff he'd done, uh, which of course that, that stretches song, back though, into the sixties. Yeah, that's still absolutely. a good song, and his vocal on that song is still incredible. Well, yeah, absolutely, and I, I would put um, Labby Sifri in the same kind of vein yes. as well. So yes. it's not just something inside so strong. If you go back, you know, yeah, um, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, we can we can we can talk about Labby Sifri and Chaz and Dave and Eminem all day long. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yes, yeah, so, excellent. I love um, yeah. What's your favourite venue either to play at or to, to visit as a punter? Well, you know, they all have their good and bad points, I think. I quite enjoyed TCM2 back in the day, which was in um, all Kentish Town, isn't it? It's yes. called something else now. Isn't it called the uh, O2 Forum or something? Yes, um, it is, yeah. I saw Barry there playing with Tin Machine, and I thought that was, it was a pretty good venue to listen. Uh, and, um, wow. yeah, I enjoyed playing gigs there. Brixton Academy's always struck me as a very lively place. I quite like that. I um, need to get there because we've had so many guests see Brixton Academy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just got something going. It's something about the relationship of the stage to where um, the crowd are. And it's just the stage is slightly lower. I don't know what it is. It's, but it's a very, you suddenly feel a great deal of love there if the circumstances are right. Is yeah. there a particular gig that you remember from Brixton Academy? Um. Well, Aaron Neville is one that jumps out. Oh, that really. was there, oh, right? Gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a as a performer, Andrew, what what makes a venue, and specifically for a drummer, what what makes or breaks a venue? Well, I think it's just if you know people don't care, um, the owners aren't sure what it's meant to be. Usually, that's the thing. You you need someone who's really committed to live music who gets it. And um, sometimes they're corporate. Sometimes there's someone running around who's doing everything, and that's great. Um, but ultimately, venues are made really by, you know, history, apart from anything else. Yeah. Um, what a wonderful answer. Yeah. No, well, I, I just think that's true. You know, it's, it's, yeah. you can't just create a venue out of nowhere. Um, you know, and it's interesting that the these venues still around today what was hammersmith odeon is now i've forgotten what it's called now um but you know they're still around so there's something there there's a vibe but the only thing that it, it shouldn't be around anymore is wembley arena really they should do something about the sound in there but i've said enough so, yeah. <laughs> a lot of arenas a lot of arenas like that though we know we need to let you go very very shortly we've just got a couple of really quick questions and then we will let you be on your way um yeah, go for it. so do you still keep on top of um, new music do you are, are you still yeah going, are you still going to gigs as well well the gigs have been more problematic because of covid of and course, yeah. um you know i'm still a bit anxious about uh, going to to certain but my grandchildren have and they uh, i'm teaching my grands uh, one of my grandsons to play the drums and um no pressure oh. no i mean it's great fun um because yeah. i've you know, no, I mean you know, for him. <laughs> uh, for him, well, but bless him, he's so sweet. But he's he's got, um, you know, there's. Quite, I, I'm astonished at the amount, at the range of music that he's listening to. But it, it, it's um, so teaching him. I'm learning the things he likes, um, which are often the things I like. And yes. what's interesting is I wouldn't have imagined myself going back so nakedly into the 40s and 50s to find records, um, whereas now it's just you know you'll see Cat Stevens and. 
um, I don't know, Eloise or Paolo Natini or, um, yeah. you know, Bacar. I think they're brilliant. Um, all these amazing groups. Um, and it's like all mixed up in a melange. And it's a language that they're all speaking. And uh, yeah, it's incredible. And you know what, Andrew, please promise me that um, yes. uh, at one point when he's feeling really confident about his playing, that you say, son, come back to me when you've written every day is like Sunday. Wow. Well, who knows? Um, who knows? I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> I think it's a tricky question to answer. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be as uh, um, perhaps as uh, I, I, I love them so much. I couldn't bear to do something like no, that. Absolutely. That's the problem. <laughs> you wouldn't be such an asshole. I, 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 I wouldn't have thought twice about it if it had been someone else, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's very good, mate. Now come back to me when you've uh, played every day is like Sunday for the first time when no one's you know ever heard what? it before. Yeah. That, that would be terrible grandparenting, but you know what? If you did it, you'd, I, I'd, I would stand and clap and say, well, <laughs> you can. You're allowed. You're allowed. Well, Thankfully, there's lots of humility from him. He's such a lovely chap. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great. And you it's know really what is nice is taking it back to what you said about your childhood. Yeah. What a wonderful thing for him to be well, able to say whatever he calls you, granddad or, or grumpy. Yeah. My granddad has taught me how to play the drums. And he'll have that, you know, forever. Yeah. And whatever happens, who knows, maybe we'll see him on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury and five years time, whatever, but what a, what a wonderful thing that must be for you as well. Cause you yeah, didn't it have is, that, yeah. but you're able to pass that on to you. I hadn't thought of it that way, but actually that's fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way at all. It's really interesting. Last question for you, Andrew Parisi. What is your go-to piece of recorded live music, either a live track, a live single or a live album, or uh, maybe it's a, a piece of, um, a, a recorded uh, video, you know, some live footage of, of a live performance. I thought this is really, really difficult. Because it's a toughie, isn't it? The, the comfort zone I would go back to would be when I was first learning to play and when I got turned on to jazz. Mm. So um, I, I can't separate myself from um, a track called Liberty City uh, by, um, I think it was Jack of Pistorius. I think it was from his, it was a different album. It was something like Invitation. It wasn't word of mouth. It was Invitation from 1983. And it was from, funnily enough, from some Japanese dates that he'd done out there. I've got a feeling it was Osaka. Um, But it's just the most astonishing piece of music. It goes on for about 11 minutes. And it's, he's got this 30 piece orchestra with him. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's as far away from the rockular world as you could get. But it's, it's, it's an astonishing I can just be at home with it and it's just magical music all the time. Um, and it's joyful. That's the thing. It's playful and very joyful. It's a real celebration. I love it. What, what a wonderful answer. And Andrew, what a wonderful guest. And, and let me just so tell fine. you that the music you've created over the years, whether it's, and there's so much we haven't spoken about, whether it's with Bucks Fizzle, Morrissey, you have absolutely brought great joy to my ears and i well thank you i i cannot thank you enough well that's so kind i'm still playing i mean i still play so i'm as enthusiastic about drumming as i always was it's just uh there are competing elements now but um i'm still playing and uh, i'm available 
Do you, absolutely. Do you know what? I'm going to come. I'm going to join you one day when you feel absolutely mad enough to let me in. And I'm going to do my best Morrissey impression as I, as I listen to you play that drum line live. And I'll probably just be a crying mess oh, by the end oh, of it on the floor. But, you I'm know, sure that, that can be arranged. I can Fantastic. do that for you. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so, so much. Really well, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed that. It was great fun. Andrew Parisi there. Oh, what a diamond. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was great. Really and, sweet. And also, also, I mean, we could, have talked, we could have spoken to him about so much. You know, I forget that he would sort of be a regular comedy voice on Radio 1, you know. Yeah, I mean, he, he appeared a lot on... Um, Kevin Greening's show back in the back That's in the nineties, right. and um, he, was a, he was a bit of his he was sort of a bit of his uh, comedy sidekick, wasn't he? Yeah. When we get to speak to a musician specifically, I genuinely love hearing their different stories, and I love that he he didn't have that musical background. He hmm. did it different ways. Very early on, he thought this is going to be a job. He got you know it it, it really is fascinating, and you know I can't help but admire him. For, yeah, for how he's done it. So we will go to London next year, and we will um, meet up with him in person. I think and do a bit more of a chat, really, um, because there is so much that we we didn't have a chance to to talk about. And um, in the meantime, we've um, well, I've, I've made this playlist, which was fantastic. It's good. I was just just listening constantly to to those three Morrissey albums because you know. I have to be honest, it's, major, it, it's, it's all Morrissey on there. And the playlist is actually every day is like Sunday, just 20 times in a row. 20 times, yeah. Um, <laughs> and we have put some videos on his webpage at gigstoriespodcast.com. And yeah, loads of stuff on there. Loads. Amazing. So thank you so much, Mr. Parisi. And hopefully um, we, can, we can speak with him again soon. Yeah. Right, Chris, have you got any, um, you shooting any gigs? Any gigs coming up? Any gig tickets bought? Nothing at the moment. I'm going to get planting some seeds, I think. That's probably right. the best best use of my time at the moment. I'm not on about gardening. You can do that in your own time. Yeah. Suggestions, please. We, Chris and I, as I'm sure you know, we are based in the Northwest. So if you've got any gigs uh, coming up, do let us uh, do let us know who you're going to see and throw us some suggestions as well so we can we can get ourselves there. And as always, you can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gig Stories Pod. Um, we love seeing your faces and your messages. Hope you enjoyed our bank holiday special. Enjoy the rest of the bank holiday. And uh, we'll see them very soon, won't we, Chris? Whether we Absolutely. Want or not. Absolutely. See you next time. Bye-bye.